Good morning, parishioners of St. George. Uh, we're going to be starting a new Sunday school class. Today is going to be going on for, I think we're planning on six, five to six weeks here. Um, and so we're going to open up with a word of prayer. So, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. O gracious Father, we humbly beseech thee for thy holy Catholic Church, that thou wast be pleased to fill it with all truth and all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, establish it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of him who died and rose again, and never liveth to make intercession for us, Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, we are starting a series of classes on asceticism. Before I turn all this on, I want to ask y'all, who knows what asceticism means? You don't have to have a technical definition. Just, just raise your hand. I'm not going to call on you. Wow. Okay. Less than I expected. Okay. So we'll just, now we'll turn on the... Um, it's going to take a minute for the monitor to come on. Asceticism comes from a Greek word. We're going to go into that in a minute. But the gist of this class and of teaching on asceticism in general is discipline or training. So Christian asceticism is Christian discipline or training. And uh, the first thing I'm going to do, here we go. The first thing we're going to do is I'm going to cover the syllabus for all the things we're going to cover throughout the next five, six weeks. So Christian asceticism, and I'm subtitling this, A Life of Discipline to Conform Us to Christ. Asceticism has a point. Uh, it's the Greek word telos, means goal or meaning. Asceticism is training and discipline. But if all you're doing is the training and discipline, you're doing it wrong. There's a point to it. And the point is to conform us to Christ. So our first lesson is today... We're going to talk about what is asceticism, which we've just briefly covered. And, and involved in that class, we're also going to be giving what is asceticism in the church. How has Christ's church viewed the practice of spiritual discipline? How has it been applied in the life of the church? And I'm going to give a very brief history. And we're going fast, and if I miss a church father or somebody that you really love, I'm sorry. We could teach five or six weeks on just the history of this in the church. All right, so next, next class, we're going to get more into the meat of it. There's three things that we're going to really focus on during the season of pre-Lent and Lent. And that's prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Those are three spiritual practices that we are exhorted to do during Lent, um, part of the Anglican tradition. So after we discover what asceticism is, we're going to see how do we practice this in our prayer life. How do we practice this with fasting? How do we practice this with almsgiving? The last class is going to be sort of a recap of everything. Um, if we go through this material uh, quickly, and I find I need another class, I probably will do a class on the prayer book in asceticism. This actually has spiritual discipline built into it. It is designed to make you a spiritual warrior. And this is your tool, especially as a traditional Anglican, to help you on the path 
to conforming to Christ. Okay, so now this we're going to be talking about what we're doing today. We've just covered what the entire course is going to cover. Now, for this lesson today, we're going to talk about what is asceticism. We just briefly covered that. It's from the Greek ascesis, which means exercise. That's one definition given for it. We're going to talk about why asceticism. Why are we even having this class? Why is this a thing in the church? Why is this important? We're going to, after that, we're going to talk about dangers of asceticism. Now, that's, I probably should have worded that a little better. It's not so much dangers as we're going to cover some objections to asceticism. Um, some parts of the Christian tradition have vigorously denied that we need to have spiritual discipline. Uh, after we cover some of the objections and some of the abuses that can occur in the practice of spiritual discipline, we're going to cover how did the early church understand spiritual discipline or asceticism. We're going to particularly look at the scriptures. We're going to look at the example of our Lord and his apostles. After that, we're going to move to the early Desert Fathers and the early monastics. Um, those folks are really important for formulating a life of spiritual discipline. Um, and all monks, all religious communities, are is an attempt for men to conform their life to Christ. And that's how they've chosen to do it. Um, but we're going to see... Uh, I don't think asceticism is just for monks. That's one of the dangers we'll cover later. Uh, finally, we're going to basically skip a huge gap of history and go to the Anglican revival of asceticism. Um, so Anglicans have religious orders. We have uh, monasteries and convents. Haven't always had them. There's been a rather recent return to the religious orders. But as we'll talk about it, I don't think the Anglican tradition ever gave up on spiritual discipline. I believe it was written into our first prayer book, has been maintained throughout our prayer books, and pious Anglicans throughout the history of the Church of England have practiced asceticism. It's never been given up. So, without further ado, let's talk about what is asceticism. All right, so we just mentioned I asked you, and nobody knew or had heard this word. So it's from the Greek word, ascesis. And it can mean practice, bodily exercise, athletic training. And actually, this word was not super popular in the Greek Hellenic culture at the time. It's the church that really took this word and began to use it in a regular manner and gave it more of a meaning that we understand of it today. So I'm going to go to what I consider to be the ground zero scriptural reference of how we should view asceticism and where it's taught in the scriptures. So I've got a reference here, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 26 to 27. St. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. And you've got to remember the Corinthian church was a hot mess. Um, they had people who were just doing whatever they wanted, basically. So this is what he exhorts them to. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 26. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body, and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So I often think that 
St. Paul must have been a sports fan to some extent. He uses a lot of sporting references and, um, in the scriptures. And these, this, these verses right here are references to athletes and to training. When he's talking about running, training the body, if he says, so fight I and not as one that beateth the air, he's probably actually referencing shadow boxing. Boxers would train with shadow boxing. And the other thing I want you to understand here is, look, he's talking about discipline. And he's not, he can't be talking about just disciplining the body. St. Paul was not going to run a foot race. St. Paul was not going to get in a fist fight. So he's talking about what I believe is spiritual discipline, disciplining the body so that he could be conformed his spirit more to Christ. Because in verse 27, he says, Lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So St. Paul has concerns for his own standing with the Lord. He realizes it's going to take discipline to conform to the Lord. So this is sort of, uh, there's a number of references, we'll go through them. Um, we should always listen to our Lord. So the scriptural use of asceticism and taking up your cross. I'm going to read one of these references in Mark chapter 8. Wait. Yes. You need a different microphone. It's not broadcasting. There you go. All right. Technical. This is the uh, this is the one for the. Oh, sorry. For this you're one. on. Greetings to all our prisoners and viewers in YouTube land. Uh, we're talking about asceticism, which is spiritual discipline for the Christian life. I'm afraid you missed the first slide, which we went into all that. But right now we're talking about spiritual discipline. Sorry, the other one, the other microphone. Oh. Spiritual discipline, as it's, re- as it's related to us in the scriptures. So I'm just going to take one of the references of our Lord uh, in the Gospel of Mark, although you can see it's referenced throughout the synoptics. This is Christ speaking. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit the man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So once again, our Lord is telling us it's going to be difficult. There's a danger of falling away. St. Paul understood that danger as well. But what's the important part? It's your salvation. Um, so... We can go through the rest of these somewhat too. Mortify your members in Colossians 3.5. We've already talked about running a race, striving for mastery, bringing the body under subjection. Uh, in 2 Timothy, St. Paul will talk about enduring as a good soldier. St. Paul also had a lot of martial speech. Um, and interestingly enough, St. Paul describes marriage is good, but virginity is better. That is also a spiritual practice. That's a type of fasting, is abstinence. So we can see that there is a theme of spiritual discipline running throughout the scriptures. And what is the point of this spiritual discipline? The point of the spiritual discipline is our salvation, our union with God. And the fear is that we will lose that salvation or that we will fall away from Christ. So for this class, I'm giving us a working definition of asceticism. It's 
discipling, that works, disciplining ourselves in order to conform to Christ. So when you hear me say the word asceticism, you can think discipline. And uh, we should specifically think of spiritual discipline. We're doing outward acts that are meant to discipline our inward self. Um, So without further ado, why asceticism? Why are we having this class at all? Why is this even important? Um, My main takeaway for everyone in this class over the next five or six weeks, we're going into Lent, you get nothing out of this. If you can't remember what asceticism means, I'm hoping that you'll be motivated, compelled, in some way to take up some sort of spiritual practice during Lent, to make some sort of forward progress in relationship with the Lord. That's really, if, if, you, if you do not um, say any of your prayer offices ever, and you're like, Book of Common Prayer, you know, I, I don't need that, I pray to the Lord myself, that's fine. Maybe just pray a psalm a day. Take the psalm from the day and pray that. If you've never fasted at all, you're like fasting, I don't, I don't understand it, it makes me angry, then maybe just fast from sugar or chocolate or coffee or tea. But the point of this class is to get you thinking about disciplining yourself and to take on one type of spiritual practice. Just make some sort of forward step in the spiritual disciplines. So the purpose, what is the purpose of all this, of all this asceticism, all this discipline? Basically, we're striving for our salvation, which is union with God. I'm replacing everything that isn't God, that's a secondary good, to the side. Focus on the primary good, which is God. We need to be careful. Sometimes monks and religious orders and asceticism can make us think of Gnosticism. The body's bad, I need to discipline my body because it's such a... Uh, horrible thing. I always sin in the body. I have lust and I always feel compelled to sin. Asceticism is not about just disciplining your body. It's about union with the Lord. So we need to be careful that when we talk about things like fasting um, and abstaining from uh, marital relations, food, drink, whatever, it's not because those things are bad. Those things are good, but they're a secondary good. They're a secondary good as compared to God. Um, I want to read a uh, quote by St. John Cassian, one of, our, uh, one of the church fathers who wrote a lot and influenced Western monasticism and ascetic practice heavily. He writes, Fasts and vigils, the study of scripture, renouncing possessions and everything worldly, are not in themselves perfection, as we have said. They are its tools, for perfection is not to be found in them. It is acquired through them. It is useless, therefore, to boast of our fasting, vigils, poverty, and reading of Scripture when we have not achieved the love of God and our fellow men. Whoever has achieved love has God within himself, and his intellect is always with God. That's the point. Union with God. So you can ask yourself, why do we need these spiritual practices? Why do we need to discipline ourselves? Why do I need to, uh, to give up chocolate? Why do I need to uh, take on an extra prayer office during Lent? Why do I need to do this or that? Because you are a composite of body and soul. What you do with your body will affect your spiritual life. Um, as a personal example, I used to think I, don't, I didn't come from a tradition that had any sort of fasting. didn't have Lent or anything. 
And when I first started dating my wife, she talked about this Lent thing. And I was like, okay, that's something that like Middle Ages Catholics do, whatever. She's like, I'm gonna give up this thing for Lent. I'm like, that's just some silly superstition, blah, 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 blah. I don't need to give up that. God made me to enjoy life. This is what I told myself. God made me to enjoy life. I'm gonna do what I want. Okay, so that's what I did, and guess what? My spiritual life sucked. I didn't ever do anything for the Lord. So really what the ascetic practice is, is to make you realize what's important. Food, drink, even uh, perhaps marital relations are all great, but they're secondary to the prime good, which is my union with God. So I'm gonna take a time for us, it's gonna be during Lent, and put those secondary goods to the side. Because let me tell you, once you start to do that, it'll start to hurt. Once you say, I'm gonna give up coffee, I'm gonna give up smoking, I'm gonna give up, I'm gonna take on an extra prayer office. Well, if you've never done that before, it's probably gonna be a little painful. It's because your body wants those things and you've trained yourself to enjoying those things. So asceticism is about training yourself to enjoy union with God. It doesn't happen overnight. Your salvation is by grace, we'll go over that. But it takes a lifetime of discipline to conform to Christ. Does anyone have uh, questions or thoughts on any of that before we proceed? I, I want to make it interactive. I haven't really asked for anything. Yes? What's that picture? Okay. This is a great icon. Uh, I don't know who the iconographer is. This is an Eastern Orthodox icon. Uh, this picture is usually associated with St. John of the Ladder. Uh, St. John of the Ladder is an Orthodox church, but it was an actual saint, 5th century? I'm not sure. He wrote a book called The Ladder of Divine Ascent. And basically, he, he compared our life to climbing a ladder. And you climbed it by practicing the virtues. And as you went up the ladder, you had temptations or just straight outright demonic attacks trying to pull you off that ladder. So his point was, and he would give precise steps. He was talking to monks, to religious communities. But the point is, our life is a journey. And if you spend all your life like I did, enjoying life to the fullest by eating and drinking whatever you want, by never practicing spiritual discipline, you're going to be one of these people that gets pulled off down here. Because when you enter eternity with our Lord, you enter it being who you were. If you spent all your life being a slob, that's going to be, uh, the Lord may purge that from you in the afterlife, but that could be painful. So asceticism is about beginning that purging here, beginning that discipline here, by climbing the ladder, by practicing the virtues, and avoiding the temptations. Uh, I have not actually read St. John's book. It's a classic. Um, as most classics are, it's probably really boring, but it's probably also good. So, does anyone... Yes, Mike. Can it be analogous to purgatory? Ye, uh, yes. Um, I believe St. John and a lot of the early church fathers would have understood purgatory, but they would have said it begins in this life. This life, in a sense, is that, is that purgation. Um, it's because, um, for instance, if you are an addict of some kind and you come to know the Lord, you can say your sinner's prayer to Jesus, get baptized, go and receive the Eucharist, go to confession, and you know what? You're still an addict. You're still going to fight with alcohol, tobacco, drugs, or whatever. It's painful. Um, so the fathers would say purgatory, whatever that is for you, begins in this life. Um, is there any other questions or any other comments? Yes, Joe. Deacon Josh, would you say that what Cassian said in that little quote is more of a, a, a 
asceticism uh, to taking it to the point of almost being legalistic? Yes. And avoiding that legalism abs display. Absolutely. One of the authors I'm reading in preparation for this class is Father Thornton, who's an Anglican priest. And he's really boring, so I'm reading the book so you don't have to. I'll tell you what he says. Uh, but basically he says, if you mistake the practice, of spiritual discipline, as the primary good. Remember we talked about a hierarchy, primary good versus secondary goods. If the practice of spiritual discipline becomes the point of your spiritual discipline, you're doing it wrong. The point of all that discipline and fasting and praying is to come closer to Jesus Christ. Um, and really, all asceticism is saying is that union with Jesus Christ and conformity to him requires training. Just never, never mistake the training for, for our Lord. So yes, exactly. Yes? Orton said it really well at the end of the first century. He said, God gave us all these things. We love to eat. We yeah. love to drink. We love to have sexual relationships. We love to run sometimes, yeah. sometimes swim. Sometimes sleep too much. He didn't say we shouldn't do that. Right. I think all in moderation has a second. Yes, absolutely. And we're going to cover that a little bit with Saint Benedict's rule, but that's that's exactly that's exactly right. Moderation is the key here. Because now we're going to talk about dangers of asceticism. Um, and really I should have titled this objections. <clears throat> Excuse me. Alright, so what you're seeing here, this is not a Christian ascetic. This is probably um, a Hindu or Eastern religious person practicing asceticism. And that's why I titled this Christian asceticism, Christian discipline. There are other religious faiths who practice asceticism. Don't mistake that for what we're talking about. This guy right here is not striving for union with Jesus Christ, I don't, I don't think. All right, so some of the objections are perhaps dangers. Doesn't it contradict salvation by grace and faith? And I'm going to answer that question by asking another question. Does St. Paul contradict himself? Consider, when he writes to the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So what are we saved by? Are we saved by grace? Yes. Are we saved by faith? Yes. Are we saved by works? Yes. We are saved by our cooperation with God. God can save us in any way he wants to. He has chosen to allow mankind to cooperate with him and his saving plan. Um, so what does this do? To, does this take away from God's sovereignty? No. All I can say is God is absolutely, completely sovereign. He is in control of everything. And you have a chance to cooperate or not cooperate with him. How that works out, I don't know. It's a bit of a paradox. So asceticism doesn't contradict grace and faith. It can if you become a hypocrite and, and, and think, well, I've, I've said my morning offices every day for a year. I must be really good with God. That, that's not how this works. Um, so asceticism should not contradict grace and faith. It should build off of it. Does it lead to pride? Well, any practice can lead to pride. I mean, me wearing this collar can lead to pride. Um, anything that you have can lead to pride. So yes, once again, don't mistake the practice for the goal. You can... I'd be like, well, I've given up everything but vegetables and bread for Lent. <clears throat> I prayed that both offices and I do the Jesus prayer for an hour. Um, I'm doing pretty good this Lent. You're doing it wrong, if that's your thought. Aren't ascetics mostly just hypocrites? 
Well, let's see what Scripture says. It says, Judge nothing before the time unto the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. You worry about you. The other person who's fasting and telling you about it might be a hypocrite, might be an ascetic hypocrite. It's not your call. Your call is to judge yourself, to keep yourself into conformity with Christ. Can you harm yourself by practicing spiritual discipline? There have been times in the church when certain people have gone too far, and you read stories about these religious who like climb up on top of a tower and sit in the sun for years, and people give them food. And uh, there was a real problem, especially with monks in the early church, having like almost contests of seeing how much crazy stuff they could do. The church has always eventually said, knock that off. Uh, we'll see in this rule of St. Benedict, it's about moderation, uh, as Mike has told us. So, I mean, you, you could harm yourself by asceticism, but most of the pain you'll feel in your spiritual practice is just because, man, I really wanted that cup of coffee, and now I can't have it. So, and when you have those sorts of pains, you should start to think about, why is coffee so important to me? Why is having sugar so important to me? Why is watching this TV program more important than seeing my prayers? That should make you think about that hierarchy of goods and what is really important in your life. So it can be painful, but it's not going to damage your health unless you're like this man. Isn't it just for monks and weirdos? Okay, that's like saying, is it imitating Christ just for monks and weirdos? Everyone's called to imitate Christ. So everyone's called to spiritual discipline and conformity to Christ. All right, early church asceticism. And we're slowly running out of time, so I'm going to kind of move along. Jesus Christ is our model as an ascetic. He is our model for spiritual discipline. Sermon on the Mount, you know, um, that's full of teaching of disciplining yourself. It's the meek, it's the humble, it's the lowly. He goes fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. He goes alone to pray with the Father. Uh, he, pra- he practices celibacy. Our Lord is celibate. We may think, well, of course, because he's God, he wouldn't have a wife. But actually, it's more radical for him to be celibate than to be married. Most Jewish men, rabbis and teachers, were married. That was the norm. For Jesus not to take a wife is actually exceptional for the Jewish culture at the time. Um, And we see in the Gospel of John, he says, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Think about all the times our Lord says, um, I have water to drink of that you don't know. I have food to eat of that you do not know. It's because our Lord always has that hierarchy of goods in the right place. All right, apostolic asceticism. So the apostles. We've already read several quotes from St. Paul. He says that we have, again and again, St. Paul is telling us that we have to strive and discipline ourselves at the same time that he's saying we're saved by grace and faith. So once again, it's, it's an interlocking, intermingling it's a bit of a paradox. St. Paul teaches that. Uh, one of my favorite church fathers, and you're hearing about him because I wrote my dissertation on him, St. Irenaeus on asceticism. Even before monasticism was a thing in the church, the fathers realized that mankind was always meant to grow into full and more full union with God. And for St. Irenaeus, he even said that Adam, as he was created in the garden, was created to grow into union with God. So that growing into union with God has always been God's plan for the human race. It's not something that happened just because Adam sinned and now we've got to like find our way back to the garden. No. Union with God is always the point. All right. So now we move on quickly to actual 
monasticism as a movement. Um, different competing stories about who was the first monastic, but we're going to go with St. Anthony the Great, uh, Egyptian that lived in the third century. Uh, was born to a wealthy family. Um, was a Christian. Got really convicted about how, how Jesus talked about give up everything, sell everything you have. And so he did that. And eventually he got to the point where, like, it's not enough for me to give up all my clothes and my goods and sell my house and give all this. I need to get away from the world and go and live in the desert where I can be alone with the Lord. And the funny thing is about most of these hermits, when they left the world to go into the desert and pray, because they were holy men, people followed them out there. So they intended to be a hermit, and next thing they know, they've got 40 disciples showing up. Um, can anyone tell me why there was a draw for men and women to go into the desert to be alone with the Lord? Does anyone have an insight on that, why that happened? Okay, I'll tell you. I'm sorry, go ahead. The, well, primarily, one thing is they're imitating our Lord by going into the desert. Our Lord went alone into the desert. Um, I would say, though, uh, as far as like culturally, monasticism began around the time that Christianity started becoming legalized in the Roman Empire. And so a lot of people felt like we were being persecuted. We had all these martyrs and heroes of the faith. I can't be like that. No one's going to kill me for being a Christian anymore. What can I do to really sacrifice? And so it became a sort of new martyrdom or white martyrdom that they would leave the world and go and spend their lives in solitude and contemplation. They also often believed that after the empire, the Roman Empire became Christian, the cities had been hotbeds of demonic activity. Temples were there. Idols were there. People were there. And... Uh, there was demonic activity. Christian early church really believed there's strong demonic presence in a lot of these large cities. When the empire became Christian, the belief was that all these churches were being built in the cities. Um, all these priests were coming in. The sacraments were available. They had driven the devils and the demons out of these cities by Christianizing them. Well, where had they gone? They'd gone off into the desert. So a lot of times you would have monastics go into the desert looking for a battle. Um, you can interpret that symbolically if you want, but in many cases, these men felt that they were literally going to have uh, demonic warfare when they went off by themselves. Uh, really quickly, Basil the Great, uh, fourth century Cappadocian father, which is now in modern Turkey, he wrote a big uh, rule for the East. Most of your Eastern um, religious orders follow Basil the Great's rule. And the West is St. Benedict. He's the guy that does it. St. Benedict lived at a time which the Roman Empire had absolutely collapsed. It was gone for all intents and purposes. And so he gathers men around himself in a time of chaos, he tries to find stability. If you remember, we talked about the Benedict option. Um, but Benedict's rule has affected Christianity in the West ever since. I, I don't care if, if you're, whatever tradition you're from, you probably have adopted some of St. Benedict's practices in your own life. His big deal was he was going to write this rule for all the men that lived with him. And he would prescribe all these rules about eating and drinking and when you went to prayer and all this stuff. And we look at that and be like, what a Pharisee. What, what a legalist. But his point was moderation. He's like, if I tell you when you're going to eat and when you're going to sleep and when you have to go to work, you don't have to worry about that anymore. You don't have to worry if I'm getting three squares a day. You don't have to worry about, well, am I going to go out and farm tomorrow or not? I'm going to tell you what you're going to do 
so that you no longer have to worry about those things. Instead, you can contemplate and fixate on the Lord. That's the basic point of Benedict's, Benedict's rule. Um, and uh, really quickly, Celtic um, monasticism. So the Celtic peoples uh, were much more uh, prone to having hermits, individual monks, living in these little cells. You may have seen the little beehives, stone beehives, on these little islands, tiny islands. Uh, but what's important about Celtic monasticism is spiritual direction. Uh, the Celtic uh, Christians were the first to really fixate on you come to this spiritual director, you give him your confession. Up to this time, most confessions were public, and not like ours. Not like ours where you pray quietly in your heart. No, if you were an adulterer, you stood up in the middle of the church where your bishop was and told everyone in the church, you're an adulterer. The bishop threw you out of church, and then you begged for years to come back in. Well, the Celts were like, that's awful. So they actually, private confession starts with Celtic monasticism. That's where spiritual direction comes from. I'm struggling with this sin. I'm going to go to Brother... um, Blaze, and he can tell me how to quit lusting, or he can tell me how to quit drinking, or he can tell me how to pray better. All right. And we're going to pretty much skip the Middle Ages and go straight to the Anglican Revival. So a reformation of asceticism. It is my contention that the, the history of the English church, when Henry VIII um, started changing the power structure in the church, he dissolved the monasteries and got rid of them. It was mostly motivated not by theology or faith, it was motivated by politics. Henry didn't want all that land, valuable land, being owned and controlled by some bishop in Rome. He wanted to own it. Furthermore, if he could dissolve these monasteries and then give all his English aristocrats the land these monasteries were sitting on, they would all have a very vested interest in making sure that the Pope and people loyal to him didn't show back up to take the monasteries back. So I believe that primarily the dissolution of the monasteries was not about monks are bad and we, we really hate Catholic monks. It was about, I want this money and this land. I'm going to make sure everyone joins me in this so that we're all in this together. And I'm saying that because I don't believe the English church ever gave up on spiritual practices. The rule of St. Benedict is built into our book of common prayer. What's <coughs> Beautiful for us is that the Reformation movement in England produced a return to the lay people for religious and spiritual practice. You had um, two offices instead of seven. You had a morning and evening office. You had it uh, in language you could understand. Um, And I really believe that when the monasteries disappeared, there was a gap that came about regarding spiritual discipline, and into that gap, into that void, rushed the lay people. And we can see that because in the 17th century, 1600s, I mean, the, basically the Reformation is still going on in England. You have communities of English people setting up what amounts to a monastic community without calling it that. And they're using the Book of Common Prayer. They're living together communally. They're even attacked by the Puritans, who are basically calling them you know, a bunch of heretics. Um, so... The English people never gave up their spiritual practices, never gave up that common life of prayer. It was enshrined in our, in our liturgy, um, and our liturgy uh, guided and directed the English people for hundreds of years. 
without monastic movements. In the 19th century, you actually had official movements come back. And I think that was because, for the most part, from what I have read, um, a lot of, especially uh, women, females in England, felt like they weren't participating in the life of the church enough. And some of the English priests realized that if they didn't do something, these pious English women were going to start going to the Roman Catholic Church because they could enter uh, religious orders in the Roman Catholic Church. And so the English, some English priests slowly started forming female religious orders, and then eventually you had male religious orders come about. Um, they're still around. There's not a lot of them. Continuing Anglican religious orders in America are tiny, but they do exist. If you go on the internet, you can probably find some of them. Um, but there was a more formal return to formal religious orders in the 19th and go to the 20th century. Um, but please remember, I don't think that that was because Anglicans had rejected uh, monasteries and nuns and religious practice. I think that they had always had that and they eventually found their way back to more formalized structures. So we're about out of time, and we've covered a lot of ground quickly. Does anyone have any questions or comments? Yes, John. When we lived in Maryland, there was an Anglican uh, group of sisters living in, in Baltimore. Okay. And then when Benedict, Pope Benedict came out and invited us Anglicans to return to Rome, despite counseling against it, they went over to Rome. And you'll even see, I actually think um, religious orders could be a point of, of unity in the church. If you can get Anglicans that are Benedictines and Roman Catholics that are Benedictines together, worshiping and praying the same offices, using the same structure, I mean, that's a type of union. Um, and there have been efforts amongst religious orders to form it more union. So that's a good thing. Um, uh, I think Anglicanism needs to make sure that we feed people spiritually. And if we have people leaving to go to the Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox churches to join religious orders, that means that we're not providing it. Um, so we need to be aware of that. Does anyone else have a comment or question? Yes. So you said the rule of St. Okay. And it's, I mean, it's too big a question to answer now, but can you point us to where I can look that up? And okay. Um, I, can give you, I can give you the name of Father Thornton, who wrote two books. Okay. But um, basically, well, what, uh, well, I actually would like to do one class on the Book of Common Prayer and the Bill of St. Benedict. But basically... What the Book of Common Prayer did was it took the offices throughout the day and made two of them, morning and evening. If you look at traditional breviaries, there's a lot more. So there's a, it's a sandwich. And because we have a morning and evening office, what's the biggest actual office in the book, the one that's most important, is the Mass. So you're going to see on the teaching of prayer, the Book of Common Prayer is teaching us what is the most important prayers of the church. It's the Mass. It's morning and evening offices, everything's centered around the Mass and the offices, and then the filler material is your little personal prayers. So the, the Book of Common Prayer is also teaching us to pray the prayer of the church. We're going to discover there's actually no such thing as private individual prayer. And I believe all those things make uh, the Book of Common Prayer Benedictine in some aspects. 
But we'll try to get to that more. I'd like to get to that more. So, anything else before we go? Yes. I just have a quick thought. Yes. God directed the building of the temple. Okay. It's how long it is, how wide it is, how tall it is, everything. Very, very, very specific building of the temple. How important in our spiritual life is that building? God thought it was very important. How important is our spiritual life? Well, if you look, I can't, that's a huge question. But real quickly, we'll see that the Lord refers to his body as the temple, and Christians are referred to as the temple. The fact that the Lord in the Old Testament spent so much time describing how important the temple was means to me that we should consider ourselves important. We should take care of ourselves. That doesn't mean, you know, working out. But if we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and God was really specific about the temple in the Old Testament, consider yourself um, and we can also talk about what does that mean for our own church structures. Um, because, once again, physical spaces will conform us to a certain way of life. If you've got four bare walls and a pulpit, that reveals your theology. If you've got icons and candles and incense, that reveals your theology. If you're meeting at a rock in the field, that, that reveals your theology. So physical spaces will reveal what you believe and will help shape what you believe. Does that sound okay? All right. Uh, I will see y'all in there shortly. We're done. Thank you.